When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihaharath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we had said to you in Egypt, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, for all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And, is, and, the, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used upon the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The Word of the Lord. Happy Father's Day to you. It's good to see all of you. I hope uh, it's been a good start, uh, even though the weather is uh, a little dreary. 
If you are a guest with us, uh, we'd like to welcome you, um, and we're glad to have you. We're in the middle of a sermon series in Hebrews 11 called The Hero Story, and asking the question, what does is, what is godly heroics look like? And how, what is, how does that look differently than what man considers heroic and lasting and purposeful? And so, boys and girls, this week, the drawing I would love for you to do as we talk about this story is one of the most wild and unbelievable stories in the entire Bible. It's the story where they cross the Red Sea, where the waters part and Israel walks across the sea on dry ground. And I would love for you to imagine what that looks like and draw it and show it to me after the service. This week we, uh, we bring a close to Israel's story in Egypt. We've been there for the last three weeks. And the event at the Red Sea is where God makes good on His promise to Abraham that He made 500 years before. It was a promise that he'd deliver his people from their oppressors, and that he would bring them to a land of promise, a land of flowing with milk and honey. And it's God's big reminder to his people that God remembers his commitment, and he remembers his promises, because he's the God that does not forget his people. That despite all else, God does not forget. And what happens at the Red Sea isn't just simply a story about how God destroys his enemies. It's actually far more to the story. It's really a story about God creating a people for himself. This event at the Red Sea was actually the defining moment in the nation of Israel. It was their birth, their beginning. It was their Boston Tea Party where they set out on this journey to be a nation. Because before they crossed the Red Sea, they were on the shore, just slaves. A collection of slaves. And on the other side of the Red Sea, they were this new nation whose God had just defeated the most powerful empire in the entire world. And none of the Israelites ever had to pick up a single sword or weapon. It's the beginning of a new life for them. But the irony of this event is that it's, while it's the beginning of a new life for Israel, at the same time, the story actually contains the seeds of their own destruction and their own collapse and their own downfall. And Hebrews 11 is actually quite short-winded when it comes to describing this defining moment. All it talks about is Israel walks on dry ground, Egypt tries to do the same, and they're drowned. Israel passes through, and Egypt doesn't. And even though it's mentioned as brief, there's something important you have to understand, that to the audience of Hebrews that actually were converted Jews to Christianity, the fact that the author of Hebrews would include that generation in the heroes of the faith would have seemed odd. Why is that? Well, it's because they know that story quite well. Because why would he include them in their story of faith whenever that generation died in the wilderness because of their hardness of heart? It's like, why would you, that? You'd include them in the heroes of the faith? Those people? Those are the cousin Eddies of the Israelite family that we don't like to talk about very much. That generation lost all of it. Why are they in the hall of faith? And why would that be an encouragement to me? To find our answer, we have to look back at the story in Exodus 14. And in Exodus 14, we pick up the story right after uh, Christian Baal has just led Israel out of Egypt. I saw Gods and Kings last weekend, and it ruined me all week because I couldn't help but read all of Moses' lines in the story in the Batman voice. <laughs> Let my people go. I've been bored with Ryan gone. It's been lonely. I'm trying to 
Messer. <laughs> I ruined your ability to probably read any, take me seriously anytime I read from Moses today. All right, we'll try and get back together. It's enough fun. All right, God has Moses lead Israel to this place where they feel completely trapped. They feel completely powerless. He orchestrates all of these events to bring them to a place at the Red Sea where they have no place to go. And so Israel is left standing, staring out at the Red Sea, and behind them are the Egyptians ready to take take over. They feel completely and unbelievably powerless, and how could they possibly entertain any notion of escape? And on the other side, Pharaoh is feeling quite confident that he's going to win after all, because he's got them trapped, and they're in a bottleneck. But the story goes that this is exactly how God wants it. He's designed this whole situation. He's orchestrated this situation that feels impossible because he's going to show himself to his people and he's going to make a fool out of Pharaoh. And he's going to destroy him. But the Israelites and the Egyptians have very similar responses to this situation. There's not a lot that differentiates them. They actually act quite forgetful. The Egyptians forget and the Israelites forget. They forget about God. First we have Israel that sees the Egyptians and then they cry out to Moses. And when they start crying out to Moses, they start having a really selective memory. Because they start saying things like, why have you brought us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt that we wanted to stay here and serve the Egyptians? Didn't we tell you that we wanted to stay here? And it's like, Moses had to be thinking, you people are crazy. Because that never happened. That never once happened. And they start reinterpreting history and their slavery when things got difficult. And then on top of that, you see the Israelites pointing and looking back and talking about Egypt. When you hear the Israelites talk, all they talk about is Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. They never ask about what would God have us do, but all they can see is their circumstances. And they forget all that God had done for them. They forget all ten plagues, the entire Passover. But the interesting thing about Moses' response is he gives us the response of faith. He shows us what faith looks like. He's the only one in the story that does. The interesting thing about his response is that God actually never tells Moses how he's going to deliver the the Israelites. He just says, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And for Moses, he remembers what God had done, and he trusts that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. And he makes a really bold claim whenever he tells the the Israelites what to do. He says, don't be afraid. He says, the enemy you see today, you'll never see again. I have no idea how he's going to do it. I don't have a clue. But the Lord will fight for you. Don't be afraid. Israel's reminded of God's power and who it is that brought them there in the first place. And reminds them of the foolishness of thinking that he would bring them so far to give them so little. And God then tells Moses how the people should respond. He says, tell them to go forward in the sea. Tell them to go forward and watch. For me, I'd have been done about there. Why? Because there's sharks in in the seas, okay? And I would have been done. The most fearful place for me is the ocean, and that's exactly where God tells his people to go. Unbelievably difficult circumstances. And they step in 
and all the water parts. And they understand that the only way they can get across was to simply walk forward by faith and trust that God would not let the waters come crashing down on them. And Egypt, on the other hand, was just as forgetful. Because what Moses should have done was he should have run up to Moses and waved a white flag and said, we want to go with you. We want to go with you. Wherever this God is taking you, we want to go because we've seen what He has done and He is the true God. We will go with you. And my army will protect you to wherever it is He's leading you. What would He have us do for you? How could we join in His purposes and His plans? But that is hardly the case. Because Pharaoh's angry, vengeful, and in his pride he wants to put Israel back in slavery once again because all he wants is to make himself great. All that God had done never once made him want to challenge whether or not his own purposes were the best thing to pursue. He wants what he wants more than what God wants. And you'd think after experiencing all ten plagues and the Passover, Pharaoh would think, you know, maybe pursuing them isn't the best idea. All right? Maybe I'll just let them go because I don't want to see what's going to happen next if I continue to pursue them. But he doesn't. He doesn't at all. None of that even comes to his mind, and he completely forgets what God has done. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He goes into the sea, and he and an entire army are drowned. And it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and there's been much ink that has been spilled on the idea of what it means for Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Is it God that hardened him? Is it Pharaoh being hardened? Hardening himself? Here's the point of Pharaoh being hardened by God. Think of hardening this way. God brings judgment by giving you the opportunity to pursue exactly what you want. And He never stops you. Gives you the opportunity to pursue exactly what you want. And He doesn't intervene and it ends up being your undoing. Moses reminded Israel of God's power. Whenever they forgot, he reminded them, and they moved forward in faith by trusting in his promise to deliver them. All they had to do was trust and move forward. Just put one foot in front of the other and walk. I'd have been running as fast as I could to get across that thing. Put one foot in front of the other and trust God. Isn't that how faith goes? It gets hard and all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. And that's all it takes. Why? Because God fights for you. He fights for you because He's the God who doesn't forget His promises. Israel moves forward, but Pharaoh forgets what God does and he pursues his own purposes. And he gets stuck in the mud, literally. And the waters come and swallow him up. And in the end, he becomes the one who's forgotten. And on the other side of the sea, Moses writes a worship song. He writes a song about Yahweh, the divine warrior, delivering his people and leading them forward by his tremendous love. That's unbelievable if you think about it. 
Just that phrase all week has stuck with me, that He leads them forward by His tremendous love. He fights for His people because He loves them. He leads them forward because He loves them. And it would be great if the story ended there on that side of the shore, but it doesn't. Because the promised land is not next door to the Red Sea. They had still had a long journey ahead of them. They had a long journey ahead to get there. And they still had to move forward by faith to see where it was that God was taking them. And this song that reminded them of who God was would have been great to sing at every circumstance. To sing and be reminded of God leading us by His love. He loves us and He will fight for us. It would have had, would have been great for that song to be the soundtrack of their journey, but it's not. Because they forget, once again, and they slowly become stuck in the mud, and they forget that God has something beautiful for them. But all they can think about is going back to Egypt. Because three days later, they can't even find any water. Difficult circumstances happen. They get thirsty. And they cry out to God, and they grumble and complain, but God still gives them bitter water that He makes sweet. And then two weeks later, Israel forgets once again, and they do the same thing they did on the other side of the Red Sea. They continue to complain. They don't want to move forward anymore because they're hungry. And they start saying crazy things again, like, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt where our meat pots and bread overflowed. Once again, didn't happen. They forget how bad their slavery even is. It just shows us that it's so hard for us to imagine a life apart from our slavery that we don't ever really want to go on that journey. Because we don't trust God. And it's easier to cope. It's easier to accept that we're slaves than to be willing to experience freedom. And it's amazing how in difficult times we so willingly choose slavery. It's like... I think we've all seen somebody in a really bad relationship. A really bad relationship, and they end it, and then they go, and they're, they're free. They experience a little bit of freedom, but it also feels like loneliness. And they're afraid, and they go back into that relationship that was so awful. And it's unbelievably sad, because you see them being unable to see a life apart from their chains. Unable to see a life that is beyond... Slavery. And it's tragic. And even after God makes bread fall out of the sky, literally, bread. These are crazy stories. Bread falling out of the sky. They still forget. They still forget. Because whenever they get to Canaan, there's giants in the land is what the report says. And they said, no. I'm unwilling to move forward. We don't want this Wherever you're taking us, God, we're done with. We're going back to Egypt. It was easier there. It was easier. We're leaving. And their story is one where they continue to forget God time and time again and all that He did for them, and they never learned to begin to live a life of faith that started to want what God wanted. Which puts us to the question of faith. The question of faith is, do you want what you want, or do you want what God wants? One is slavery and one is freedom. And the truth is the Israelites in the entire story look just like the Egyptians. They complained and kicked against God's purposes time and again. 
and chose other gods for themselves until eventually God says, fine, if you don't want the promised land and you don't want what I have for you, and if you want to be like Egyptians, then I'll let you be just like Egyptians. You'll die out here in the wilderness just like they did. Because Paul makes an interesting point in 1 Corinthians 10 where he explains the danger of this generation of not embracing God's promises and continuing forward in faith. He uses them as an example where he explains how that first generation out of Egypt was destroyed by the destroyer. The same destroyer that killed the Egyptians. On the night of Passover... And they wandered out in the wilderness for 40 years, spiraling downward until until eventually they were swallowed up by death. And Psalm 95 says it clearly, that that generation died with hardened hearts. Just like Pharaoh, he gave them exactly what they wanted, which was not what he wanted. And the same problem plagues Israel throughout its entire history. It's... Rarely not the case that Israel is not in war or falling apart because of their lack of faith and trust and remembrance in God's promises. And when things go bad, they cry out to God and He delivers them. But then they return to their old ways and they forget. And then on the other hand, when things go really well for them, they forget about God and they pursue more wealth and more power and more ease and more comfort for themselves. And they completely forget about God because they don't need Him. And it's the story time and time again. And every time they can't see beyond whatever circumstances they're in, whether they're in good seasons or they're in bad. And they forget about God and all of His promises because God just becomes this divine bail bondsman or whatever you call Him just to get them out of trouble whenever they're in a jam. And that's not what God wants for them because He's far more than that. And to not understand that is a tragedy. And how often is that maybe true of us? We pray and we ask God to deliver us. We want to experience God's power from a difficult situation, and He does. But before the weekend's over, we've already moved on to other things. We forget. We miss God in our circumstances without pausing to worship and thank God for His goodness to us. Or the opposite, when things are going well for us, we pursue everything but God, and God just becomes an afterthought until the first moment of panic hits. And in both situations, the problem is the exact same. It's the fact that we let our circumstances determine how we approach God and not let God determine how we approach Him. And the author of Hebrews would say, that is a dangerous mistake, friends. It's a dangerous place to be. Because you will miss out on the same thing that Israel did the opportunity to experience the joy and rest that comes from experiencing God as your delight above all else. So we still have the question before us, why did the author of Hebrews use this generation as examples of faith? I certainly wouldn't want their story. They're not example. <laughs> they don't feel very exemplary to me. But that's precisely the point. Remember that the audience of Hebrews is considering going back to Judaism because things are getting hard. They're being persecuted. So they convert to Christianity, which means they believe in a better Moses. They believe in a bigger Red Sea. 
And they believe in a bigger victory, an enemy that's being defeated than Pharaoh. They see a bigger story unfolding, but it gets hard. And they want to go back. They want to go back to where it's easy. They couldn't, life got harder for them when they became Christians. They couldn't eat at the same restaurants, walk down the same streets. Their kids got harassed at school and came home crying. They couldn't do business with the same people anymore. They were unable to think about how to learn to live this new life on the other side of the Red Sea of sin and death. They just weren't willing to be free because it got hard. And so the author of Hebrews includes this generation, this first generation for two things, both as an encouragement and as a warning. He offers them encouragement by saying, I know that you're suffering. I know your circumstances are hard, but remember this generation that even when their faith was so unbelievably, pathetically small, God still moved on their behalf. He's the God who moves on behalf of His people. Even when your faith is so small, because God does not forget or abandon His people. He's begging him to see that in the face of difficulty, it's far better to move forward because God's promises are better. But you won't experience them being better unless you're willing to put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward and trust God. That's all you got to do is just keep moving forward. But there's also a, a warning because it's the fact that God's people forget Him in both good and bad circumstances. And He wants them to remember what happens when we do. The author wants his audience to remember that the first generation out of Egypt forgot God's promises. They experienced this tremendous deliverance. It was always that thing of the past, but they could never move forward in faith to the future that God had for them because it got difficult. And it's a warning against having a type of faith that's simply circumstantial. It's the warning against the type of faith where you only call upon God when you need Him because it completely misses out on God's purposes. And here's why that is so important to understand because the first generation never realized that God delivered them so He could take them to a better place. They never embraced the fact that God had a destination in mind when He delivered them. He didn't just drop them off in the wilderness on the other side of the Red Sea and say, hey guys, it's been real. All that stuff in Egypt was wild. But I gotta get out of here, I gotta go do some stuff. I'm gonna head out. Here's my card. Call me if you need me. I'll swing by. What kind of God is that? But that's the exact is God that Israel wanted. They didn't want to move closer to this magnificent new God that wanted to show himself to them, that wanted to reveal himself and lead them by his love. Instead, they just wanted Batman. I wanted a superhero. Just wanted to be swooped in and rescued whenever they needed it so they could go on and pursue their own desires. And it's sad because it's a warning against the fact that it's a warning against claiming and knowing the promises of God that it's a life and death situation. But in the end, we go and pursue other things far more earnestly, far more passionately, and far more lovingly. 
And this, the warning is the fact that it's a story of tremendous potential. It's a faith that started, but it's not a faith that finished. It's a story of potential because they can never see God at work beyond their circumstances. They're never willing to see it. They never learn to say, okay, God, I'm thirsty. I'm really thirsty, but I trust that you want me to be thirsty. Okay, God, I'm hungry. I'm starving. But I trust that you want me to be. And I trust that you want to show me something better. And they never grew in their faith of this mysterious and beautiful God that wanted to show them His love for them in all of their circumstances. Why? Because He orchestrated every single one of them. And they missed it. And He's saying, don't miss out on God in this. Don't miss out that Jesus has brought you here so He could show you His love. And it's the warning of being reminded that in the end, they missed out on the rest that God had offered. They died in the wilderness, forgotten, and outside of God's purposes and His promises. And in that gentle warning, the author of Hebrews is telling his audience to stop, be silent, don't forget, remember who your God is. He is the God that fights for you because He loves you. And He's the God that continues to lead you because He loves you. In every circumstance, He is there. Every circumstance He orchestrates. And the author wants them to see that a God that's only there to rescue you whenever you want is a pitiful God. A God that's only there to be a a superhero is a fake God because it's just simply a God that's a slave to your own desires. And so how loving is it for God to come in and challenge our desires, challenge what we want, and show us that there's something far better. A God that orchestrates every circumstance in your life because He wants you to know His love for you is a God worth knowing. Because that's the point, is to truly know God. It's not just to be rescued. We got rescued somewhere back there 2,000 years ago. The point is to understand the point that He gave so much so that He could see, so you'd see how much He loves you. Because you're going to need something to get you through the hard times when they happen. You're going to need something to get you across that Red Sea. And the only thing is to trust that He really does love you. And it's worth pursuing. This week I realized I am not that much different than a uh, Israelite. It's easy to uh, look and point fingers at them and say, how could you miss it? We always want to do that. But God gave me a humble reminder this week uh, during the simple circumstances of uh, shoe shopping while hungry. Melissa and I had an appointment in uh, Dallas, and so she had some shoes at DSW that she needed to return, and she's been looking for some new shoes. Um, uh, and she's actually had, she had complications with her feet when she was a child. And so now when she tries to find shoes that fit, it's very hard. It's very hard for her to find shoes that are comfortable. It's very hard for her to, you know, it just takes a long time and it's frustrating and it's a lot of work. And so we uh, go there and um, I've been known every now and then uh, that when I get really hungry, I get a little grumpy, okay? And uh, especially whenever, like, one of my favorite restaurants, Hop Dottie, is 
just next door to DSW. And the whole time we're at shopping and I'm just starving to death. That was a bit of an overstatement. I was really hungry and I wanted to go get that burger. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to complain about it. I'll let her shoe shop. And, and so she's looking for shoes and I kind of go and look at shoes for myself and, you know, just to, you know, just to see kind of pass the time. And then I walk over to her, you know, to kind of just slightly put the pressure on, you know, to kind of be like, well, you know, are you, you ready to go or are we, we moving on here or, uh, it's time to go eat because daddy's hungry. And, uh, and she kept looking at all these shoes and I just like make my way to the door. And I come, she'd be like, well, what do you think about these? Oh yeah, they, they look great. Yep. They look awesome. Let's get them. You know, I'm ready for a burger. And I realized that. I missed out on an unbelievably wonderful opportunity to love my wife. I missed out on an opportunity to love her. And I realized how unbelievably circumstantial my love for her was. I was hungry, and I wanted to go get that burger and be satisfied. But the truth is, if we ate before we went to the shoe store, I would have probably eaten way too much overindulged and been really full, and then the whole time I'm like, are we, are we ready to go? Are we ready to go? And the whole time, I, my love was completely circumstantial. What I wanted was far more important than loving her. I didn't actually go to her and say, can I help you find, what are you looking for? Can I help you find them? What color are you looking for? What size? I'm just having that opportunity to love her. And we do that we do that all the time with God. If my love for my wife is circumstantial, how much more so is it with the unbelievably gracious God that would give her to me? How much more, how much do we miss? How much do we miss out on? That's an opportunity I will never get back to love my wife. How many moments do we miss to know God and pursue Him? And experience them. Here's the point. Your circumstances are either obstacles or opportunities to know God. And knowing God is the one thing that's going to get you through all the difficult times. And it's the one thing that's going to get you through your good times and remind you that you have huge, unbelievable needs. It's going to constantly remind you that you don't belong here. And constant reminder that God in His love orchestrates all your circumstances for one purpose. One purpose. To know Him. To know Him and to become just like Him. And a God that's given us what's most precious to Him to defeat our greatest enemy of sin and death, that's a God we're trying to pursue and find in every single circumstance. But we have to learn by faith to see beyond our circumstances. And when we do, you'll find a love that's far better than anything this world will ever give you or ever take away. Because you have a God that will never leave you, never forsake you, and He will fight for you because He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we... We often are so afraid or doubtful of your promises to us or doubtful of how much you love us and care for us. We're 
often pursuing other things that don't bring that type of confidence and peace and rest that actually comes from pursuing You. Father, would You remind us that You lead us by Your grace. You lead us by Your mercy. That You have already defeated our greatest enemy. And why would You allow petty trials of this world to overtake us and drown us? Remind us that even in death, Your love will not allow the waters to overtake us. Teach us to walk by faith. Teach us to see beyond our circumstances. Teach us to desire Your love and to experience it not just as an idea, but as life and reality. We know that people that understand Your love and pursue it are ready to partake in the promised land and the gifts You have. We ask that You would continue to lead us by Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. In all these things we pray. Amen.